Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering fidelity to the cause of great conversation, your friend and host, Daniel Finneran. I'm joined today by a very special guest by whom every impediment to our appreciation of art will be in the course of 12 brief hours removed, Noah Charney. The author of over a dozen celebrated books, Noah most recently published The 12-Hour Art Expert, across which I had the good fortune to stumble while at my local library the other day. Uh, it's an excellent entree uh, into art for the layperson like me, and I strongly encourage you to add it to your Amazon cart and purchase yourself a copy. Uh, you'll forever be grateful to me for having advised you to do so. Uh, Noah has also written extensively on art thievery. His novel, The Art Thief, was a bestseller in five countries, and he is the founder of the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art. His work on Giorgio Vasari was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He's been a visiting lecturer at many prestigious universities, and he currently resides with his wife and daughters in Slovenia. Noah, welcome to my humble show, and thank you so very much for agreeing to join me. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be great. I think it will be. So I want to begin with a quote. The voice of our age, declared the great German poet and philosopher Friedrich Schiller, seems by no means favorable to art. With this ominous declaration, Schiller opened the second letter of his immortal treatise called On the Aesthetic Education of Man. This work, to which I will include a link in the show notes below, was published in the year 1794. This, of course, was the year in which the French Revolution descended into the reign of terror, a radical and deadly departure from the threefold causes of liberty, fraternity, and equality of which Schiller was so enthusiastic a supporter. While we've not yet collapsed into a full-scale reign of terror, we here in the West are certainly in the throes of a cultural revolution of our own. Given that, my question to you is, is the voice or the spirit of our age, our current age, favorable to art? That's a really good question. And um, extra credit, because I'm usually asked the same like dozen questions in every interview, and that is definitely not one that I've ever been asked before. So we're already off to a good start. So the thing is that every era has um, been one for which a, a death uh, toll has sounded for art and culture. Um, even in the so-called Dark Ages, which is what were called the Dark Ages because it was assumed for a long time that it was one that was bereft of, of culture um, and creativity after the fall of the Roman Empire, was actually, there were some amazing things being done. Um, they just weren't uh, at the fore, they were in the peripheries. So um, I, I think you could have picked a quote from, from many different eras to say ours is not one for art, but it always has been a time for art. 
It's just a question of um, how it's consumed. And it's always been um, a relatively limited audience that is really all in for it. Um, art should be for everyone, but it's really for everyone who's willing to take a step to meet it. And that's the idea behind this new book is to try to tear down the barriers of intimidation that I think unfortunately too many people within the art world kind of enjoy. It feels a little bit like a private club and not everyone's a member. Um, when in fact, everyone who's willing to meet it halfway should be able to be. So I think that, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, questionable things going on in our era, but the same could be said for, for any era. So I don't think it's, we're any worse off if that's any consolation. Mm -hmm. um, what we're doing now is shifting gears and we're becoming far more digital. Most of our lives are our eyes and a screen and what appears on that screen. And there are good things about that for convenience, certainly, and there are bad things about that. Um, but I think the interaction with art has really just shifted gears away from travel to meet with analog objects and a lot more to people feeling like they're getting to know art and culture through the medium of the screen, which isn't the same thing, but it's still a thing. And so I think we have to take advantage of what people are willing to come to and the screens make engagement with art in a certain way much more accessible so so there's a benefit to that as well yeah i i find it somewhat troubling to know that there's never been a time through the course of human history when so many great works of art if not every single great work of art is readily accessible to every single person with just the the swipe of a thumb or the the tap of a finger and, and and this is a um, an availability for which art enthusiasts in past ages would have killed and and stolen <laughs> as you as you know better than anyone else and yet i fear that a lot of people aren't willing or ready or confident to take that first step even to go on that path to meeting art halfway um, so what is the what do you think is the reservation at this time when we have such great availability to to art and yet such seemingly little impetus to to pursue it i think part of it is is our attention spans are ever shrinking and we're getting lazier and wanting to be more productive while being less proactive and so part of it is what's going to magically appear on one of my screens <laughs> and if it doesn't magically appear then i'm less likely to find it an example is, I mean, we, I talk primarily about um, traditional fine art um, as an art history professor, but if we just think of the sort of the, the Netflix era, um, we are delighted to watch just about anything that Netflix sort of suggests to us when we turn on the app, but there's thousands of movies available there at any given time. And if we have to go searching for it, that act of typing in the name of a movie that you maybe want to see is like one step too far for us. So the accessibility has made us feel like the world is at our fingertips, but in fact, it's really which part of the world we um, are fed by algorithms that suggest things that we will probably like because they're keeping track of things we tell them we like, but it means we're unlikely to be surprised by something. I think it, it's, it's always a, a more engaged experience when you see a work of art in person. And for me, if we go back in time a little bit, when I fell in love with art was when I was 16, 
I went to a, a boarding school in the US that had abroad programs. Um, and I spent a semester abroad in France as uh, a student. Um, and I had an art history class every day from 2 to 4 p.m. with Madame Poupard, my, my art history professor. And it was all in French and it was all in situ. We went around to the Musée d'Orsay and the Louvre and to various castles and churches. And we saw the art in person. And of course, it was much easier to get excited about it when you're going on these little pilgrimages in an exciting city where I was living away from any parents. And it was just like a great a great time in general, but then you're seeing these works of art in person and there's this real vibe, an aura, which is what Walter Benjamin called it, for lack of a more scientific term, um, surrounding great original works of art. And you don't get that with um, a digital reproduction. You don't get it through a screen. You get an aesthetic reaction. You like it or you don't. You think it's beautiful or not. You think it exhibits skill or not. Maybe you think it's interesting or not, but you don't get the vibe. Um, and you need to see the work in person to have the vibe, and that requires traveling, sometimes to wayward locations. My hope is that you get this sort of initial buzz through the digital version, and it inspires you to make the actual trip. That would be the ideal way to approach it. Um, whether that works or not, I think it depends on the person and their circumstances. My, my concern, or it's not really a concern, but it would be a shame if someone feels like they have seen great works of art, buildings, they've traveled abroad, um, seen great sites, if they've seen like a documentary about it, or if they've just seen a digital image of it. If you feel like you've seen the Mona Lisa because you saw a picture of it online, so you don't need to go to the Louvre, um, it's, it's not quite the same thing. It's like if you go to the Bellagio Casino in Vegas and say, okay, I don't have to go to Venice because I just saw a reproduction of it. It's not quite the same thing. So my hope is that it inspires people to go and see the works in person. Yeah, you, you make a few very interesting uh, remarks in those statements. Uh, the first of which I might, I might call the, maybe the paradox of the freedom of choice. Uh, and that's interesting. I've never really considered it in that way where certain images and videos are being um, suggested to you, either gently or firmly. And you mentioned Netflix. TikTok is probably the, the more ubiquitous platform on which a lot of the younger uh, people are uh, spending their time. And that certainly is the case, where for a true appreciation of art, whether great art, fine art, or even sort of mundane art, or even just a, an appreciation of nature, right? That which art imitates. You need to be able to sit down and, and really immerse yourself in the images that you're seeing. You need to be able to examine it, whether it's the, the veins on a leaf or, or the brush strokes on that uh, Mona Lisa painting. And uh, now that we have this paradox of the freedom of choice, uh, like you said, our attention spans are ever so diminished. Do you think that they are uh, susceptible of being enlarged again? Do you, uh, my fear is that, you know, over, let's say, a decade of exposure to a certain platform, if you're a 15-year-old girl right now, and you're in the totally immersed in the TikTok world, and we're using TikTok, but other apps are sort of guilty of this, of the, I, I, I don't know if guilty is the right word, but they make good use of these, of these algorithms as well. 
she spends the next decade immersed in this world of short attention demanding clips um, that kind of gets your endorphins up, your dopamine up, and keep you going, keep you swiping or, or scrolling or what have you. After a certain amount of time, you become conditioned to that. And in, in fact, there are certain medical diagnoses now <laughs> uh, based on the fact that these people are having tics and they're having you know, involuntary spasms because of their uh, tendency to, to, to swipe and use these platforms. So do you think that those ways can be unlearned? And do you think that we can be re-educated through works like yours, hopefully, to be able to sit down and very slowly and deeply appreciate work, uh, works of great art? Or do you think that it's pretty much lost? It's a, it's a good question. One of the ways to answer that is um, I'm, I'm writing a book now with my father called The 12-Hour Film Expert, the same concept of trying to get as complete an introduction as possible in 12 chapters that would take you about 12 hours to read. Um, and I, I was looking at uh, a section for action films on chase sequences, famous chase sequences. And the more modern you get, the quicker the edits. And part of the idea of a book like this is you start to watch films in a different way. It's like deconstructionism. You're starting to see, okay, what are the camera angles that I'm looking at? Um, and peeking under the hood, you see that there's, it's really the, the editor's responsibility for such rapid edits that it amplifies our engagement. We feel like there's more happening. It's more exciting. There's more tension. It's intentionally chaotic and we are tuned to that. And if we go back in time and look at the most famous chase sequence in film history um, of the pre seventies era is from the Steve McQueen film Bullet and it's 10 minutes long and there's no dialogue and it's exciting but it has far less going on and then we have the next one, it's from The French Connection with um, Gene Hackman. And it's a little bit more intense. And then if we jump ahead to things like the Bourne movies, which are completely brilliant, they're probably the epitome of what an action film can be. Um, it's just this like chopping and slicing and dicing of edits. And of course it's more engaging. And I see this with, with my children too, you know, it's much easier to start them with older films and get them accustomed to the slowness. Because if they start with today's films, then there's little chance for the older films to hold their interest, at least at a young age. When you get to a certain age, then you might be open to such things, but you have to ease in. It's also, it's like a little bit of a mindfulness thing. We can tune out because the rapid editing and the insistence on constant forward motion action naturally pulls us in. And you have to opt in and be, you know, one with the moment for a leisurely paced older film that is less stimulating to the brain in a proactive and, and overt way. So I think you can, you basically have to be in the mood for it and to be willing to chill and slide into a film to get back into the older ways. And I think that's probably applicable across the board. I see this when I'm writing magazine articles. It used to be that people liked long form journalism, and that was actually the best writing and the most insightful. And now there's almost no publications that will accept a 3000 word article. Um, they want 1500 words maximum for print. And if you're reading online, they think that your attention span is about 800 words. And it's constantly getting smaller at some point, we're going to want to do the matrix thing where you have like 
a USB stick and you put it in your ear and you're downloading information directly. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but it feels like that's the trajectory. Yeah, and my preference is, as you probably have noted, uh, for longer form, more verbose, more um, sort of eloquent and honeyed speech and language. And that's absolutely been uh, snuffed out, <laughs> uh, annihilated, I think, from, from uh, you know, journalism today. Yeah. I prefer... Keep the, the fire you know, burning, man. That's, that's uh, well, for, <laughs> for an audience of one, that's the, that's the <laughs> problem. Uh, now, I, I love the belle lettre. I love, I love writing as its own art. One of the reasons that you know I quote from Schiller is because he was that sort of a writer, this sort of poet, philosopher, akin to maybe an Emerson in America, the transcendentalist who, who writes in this very artistic and beautiful way, but you know with a message. It's not just poetry, and I've always been drawn to that, and I, I think it's beautiful, and I think we're really depriving our, ourselves of a, of a wonderful form of art. I think at which you would be very good having you know all of your knowledge and your experience as a writer uh, and instead opting for these these shorter essays and you know especially online these very truncated little i guess hit pieces that are just really um driven to to bring your eyes over that advertisement that's you know on the <laughs> on the sidebar and and make it somewhat profitable uh, but you make a good point, I, and it's an important one. I think that mindfulness, uh, of which I'm a great proponent, is almost a precondition to, to being able to truly and deeply appreciate great works of art, whether they be more traditional um, paintings on canvases or films, uh, like these chase scenes that you're seeing, and the ability to appreciate a, a Casablanca, which I watched recently with my brother-in-law for the first time, takes some patience and it takes some, um, well, like we said, some mindfulness. You need to be able to settle down into your chair and know, okay, this will be a somewhat long film. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, another good example. You need to be able to, to sit down and, and really uh, immerse yourself for a few hours time. And there might be an intermission during this film, <laughs> which I always find funny. And, uh, you know, be able to, to maintain your attention really to be able to absorb the, the full beauty of of that cinematic uh, experience. I think it's good to basically um, encourage slowness. Um, there's a Milan Kundra novel called Slowness that I really like um, that is basically talking about how we can control how we remember things and make experiences appear longer and more diverse than they actually were by varying locations and the nature of the activities we're doing. And it's kind of, it's like a concept that he put in novel form, but I think you can really do this and, and practicing slowness is a good thing. It's also a good thing for us to occasionally feel bored. That sounds like you're not supposed to do that. And we have these phones in our pockets that are guaranteed to keep us entertained at every moment. But for example, I, I started jogging without listening to podcasts or music, and I start to space out. And then I get really cool ideas that I wouldn't have gotten if I was constantly being stimulated. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes this like slowing down and being bored is actually inspiring and it kind of gives your brain like a little holiday. 
and then it starts cooking up interesting ideas. So do you think that boredom is a necessary stimulus to artistic creation? Uh, I think it's a necessary stimulus to um, doing anything that's out of your normal trajectory. So it can be artistic creation, or it could be just, you know, a new idea for your business or something to write about or for a birthday party for your kid, whatever it's going to be. Um, we are in a sort of tunnel until we're given either a new assignment that forces us out of it, which is what is a good benefit of studying because it sort of forces you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise, or when your mind is allowed to drift. The other option is if you're sort of under pressured and, and you have to come up with something because um, some external force is making you do it. But the friendliest one is, is just letting yourself space out. And I'm, I talk about this, but I need to do it more myself. I recognize the benefits of it. So there's so much reward these days for like motoring ahead and being hyper productive, um, which is good. But it's also good to just uh, just chill and and let your mind wander and not pick up the phone when you have three minutes free, but just space out. Um, I think that's beneficial. And it's something that as as a parent, I see like you constantly suggesting ideas for your kids to do if they run out of things to do. But I have to stop myself because it's good for them to have to figure it out on their own. And they're usually more interested in what they figure out than what was suggested to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There we go with the suggestions again, getting back to our uh, platforms that, that are so capable of yeah. doing this, that. Uh, so my hypothesis is that our inability to engage in boredom is going to have severe and detrimental repercussions on our artistic output in the future. I think that even even back to my own childhood, which you know, is increasingly distant, but wasn't that long ago, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a time just before the full advent of cell phones and, you know, of course the internet existed, but it wasn't something uh, onto which we all scrambled at the, the drop of a hat. There was still a, an expectation that you as a child would be out in the world, you'd be out in nature, you'd be uh, exploring a trail, you'd be climbing a tree, you'd be, you know, engaging with these natural things by which you were surrounded. And that just doesn't exist anymore. It's far simpler uh, to sit your child down or as a child to sit down and simply turn on your iPad or your, your iPhone and, and stare into it, stare into that abyss and uh, interminably. So again, that's, it's not a, not a hopeful hypothesis and, and I do, uh, my desire is that it's proven wrong, but it's, it's the moment of idleness, the moments of idleness when you're, when you're really untasked, you have nothing to do, it's the summertime, you're on vacation from school, and you need to fill your time. And if you don't have the, the ability to do that inwardly, then you, you kind of have a great emptiness. There's a, there's a great um, gap in, in one's mind and in one's soul that needs to be filled somehow. And it is filled with you know, the passing images of TikTok and Instagram and, and all those sorts of things. So uh, I, as a parent, I'm sure you are instilling these, these um, habits into your children. And, and I hope that it, 
becomes more common uh, as you know people my my generation begin bringing their children up into this world uh, so yeah you, yeah you have to you have to really be proactive about it and think to do it because the natural instinct is is to let yourself be distracted but i think one of the benefits of things like mindfulness or the kind of books that that, that you admire that are um lavishly written that aren't just meant to be entertaining and convey information but you're supposed to sink into them um you have to figure out a way to unplug and it can it's literal and figurative here and i sometimes when i'm when i'm on holiday I, I need a day or so to realize that i don't have to be like on in action man mode <laughs> mm -hmm. and um if there's a way to sort of trigger yourself to do that um and do it each day i think that's a good thing and that's that's why like if you can get yourself to spend i don't know a minute focusing on nothing except fill in the blank element of nature or a piece of fruit you're eating or whatever it is because we also want to do multiple things at once because we like this feeling of productivity so i think we have to train ourselves to do this and we have to number one it's like um step one of the program is recognizing you have a problem <laughs> um, and step two is deciding that, that you want to try to do something about it so it's not for everyone but um i think it can be done and then i think you can become more creative um but you have to uh, be cognizant of the fact that there's something proactive that needs to happen on your end otherwise you're sort of on cruise control yeah i i think in some ways we become enslaved to our distractions and we, we need to seek freedom. And uh, Schiller, I'll, I'll return to him just momentarily. He said that the road of aesthetics must be pursued because it is through beauty that we arrive at freedom. Uh, so do you think that we arrive at freedom through beauty? Do you think that foregoing some of these distractions and engaging more deeply with beauty will will get us to a, a more free uh, place that's another super question that i've never thought of the thing is what he means by beauty i think is probably different from what we would think of today um and it's uh, of a different era i think we we can find um freedom uh through thinking outside the box and doing things we don't normally do so uh it's not an aesthetic beauty but it's like th this this idea of um stepping off of the conveyor belt that we're basically standing on even if the conveyor belt is lovely and it's full of things that we like it's um it's a finite number of things and those suggestions we talked about that algorithms offer are essentially giving us more of what it already knows we like so trying to move away and do something that you don't actually think you like or maybe you think you won't like is this feeling of freedom and expansiveness like for example last night we went to a ballet and i don't particularly like ballet and i don't understand enough about it but going to it was um was interesting as an experience and it didn't really hold my interest but i liked the fact that i was sort of spacing out and it was lovely and it was a positive experience even if it's not something that i'm gonna fall for but it's uh it's expanding my horizons and that's that to me is a good thing so it's a lot of trying things out to see if you like them you may not 
but otherwise you're in this echo chamber of, of only things that are what you already like or are like what you'd already like. And so I think the freedom is stepping out and then eventually you're gonna discover something that you're totally into that you didn't think you were. And then it, it's a new horizon open to you. Hmm. Hmm. I want to persist just a little bit further with the idea of beauty. Now, you you profess at the end of your book to prefer an Aristotelian approach to art. Uh, to that, I cannot but reply, why stop at art? <laughs> why not apply an Aristotelian approach to all of life? Uh, but uh, Aristotle, along with his teacher Plato, was of the view that there were three transcendentals, of which most of you have heard. And those are, of course, truth, beauty, and goodness. So in your judgment, which of the three is preeminent? And to which would you say is art most in service? Wow, truth, beauty, and goodness. I think goodness is by far the most important one. Um, uh, art for a long time was seeking truth, but dealing in beauty. Here's here's a non-answer for you. So the, uh, the, the aesthetics of art until really the 20th century was, was paramount. And so it, it had to be beautiful either morally, so like you can have a crucifixion painting that's morally beautiful even if it's kind of grisly, um, or, or aesthetically beautiful. And the idea is that, that um, great art is somehow articulating a, a truth that we can't articulate ourselves. And that could be whether it's like a poem or a piece of music or, or a painting or sculpture. Um, so that's sort of a non-answer for you. But um, I th so I guess all of the above, I don't think it deals with, with goodness, but that to me is the most important one um, for humans. Uh, that's the quality I look for, is someone kind? Um, and nothing else interests me if the answer is no. Um, and then everything interests me if the answer is yes. Um, but I like your idea that you can apply this. Um, if we want to sound fancy pants, the Aristotelian tripartite definition for great art. Um, and he, what, what he wrote in, um, on poetics it was basically borrowed by Renaissance scholars and applied to art because he wasn't talking about what painting, he was talking about poetry and drama. But the basic question you're supposed to ask about every work of art is, is it good? Meaning, is it well done? Does it exhibit skill? Or in our era of, um, of conceptual art, does it successfully achieve what the artist set out to? Two, is it beautiful, which is a subjective decision. It could be morally or aesthetically beautiful. And three, is it interesting? And um, that requires an understanding of, of the context of it and how it compares to other works of art of a similar subject. Um, and if the answer to all of those is yes, then it's a, it's a great work of art. Um, and there's a lot of art that is only some of those categories. Like a lot of conceptual art may be interesting, but it's neither beautiful nor exhibits skill. And so it doesn't have the same resonance for me. Um, you can teach yourself to paint well and to exhibit skill, but what you're creating might not be very interesting. Like one of the biggest selling painters in American history, Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, um, turned out super cheesy, like, um, middle American living room 
paintings of little cottages with steam coming out of them, and they were hugely popular. Um, and they were well done because they're realistically painted. And some people found them beautiful, but there was, I don't think anyone actually found them interesting. And so it just doesn't do it for me. So seeking all these things, and I think you can apply that to you know, other aspects of life, which I never thought to do beyond beyond the arts. Yeah, and you can do it in the moral realm uh, as a uh, aside, uh, aside uh, along with that of the aesthetic. And I think you express what can be a somewhat challenging concept, that Aristotelian tripartite um, assessment of art in an excellent way in this book, The 12-Hour Art Expert. Uh, and going forward, that's going to be the way in which I assess artwork. Now, now maybe in, in some way I have been doing that already, but um, certainly after having read your work, I intend to uh, apply it more thoughtfully because yes, you, you, you spell it out very clearly and in a way that's very accessible, like I said, to either the, the art expert or the novice in this um, most uh, challenging realm for a lot of people. Um, so I just wanted to say uh, thank you for, for making it so clear in that book. Again, where you are able very adroitly to, to balance the, like I said earlier, the higher brow concepts that you might receive in a lecture performed by you at, a, at, a, at an institution or at a university. And some things that you might hear, you know, the, the museum docent or curator whispered to you in passing, uh, things to look out for as you gaze upon a certain work of art. I appreciate so, that because that was really the, the intention. I, um, I also happen to like the more like florid writing styles, but I think that, and I think I say this in the book, art has an intimidation problem. Yeah. And so part of, part of my shtick, which is different from other professors like TV presenters and writers is I'm trying proactively to undercut that because there are plenty of people writing very beautiful, elegant prose about art, but then they're writing to a very limited audience. And I'm trying to write it for anyone who's willing to make it halfway, which is part of the, I'm a little bit guilty of what we were talking about earlier, which is um, uh, trying to appeal to those who feel like they want to absorb a lot as quickly as possible. Um, and, and trying to basically be a halfway bridge between people who might not turn to art at all, but maybe a little bit interested, but they're only really interested if they're going to get it in a down-to-earth, quick-cut way, so it's relatively concise. Um, and then maybe it's like I'm the gateway drug for people <laughs> going to, to, to the more elegant, uh, long-form um, art history prose. Yeah, and I, I think your work is a beautiful intermediary between those two sides, between the, the attention-starved dilettante and the, the aspiring um, artistic uh, professor, let's say. So, cool. yeah, that's and, the idea. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you, again, you succeed in that um, uh, um, definitively. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great success. But then you also are able to uh, write a little bit more lavishly and, uh, and eloquently in other works like Stealing the Mystic Lamb, I'm looking at that right now. And, you know, that's, I would say, still a popular work, but I would think fewer people, fewer lay people are going to pick that one up um, than they would the 12 hour uh, art expert. Um, so again, um, plaudits to you because I think you you balance that just 
perfectly. And I'm sure it was difficult to restrain yourself and, and to write <laughs> for, for a, a more popular audience, but you, you do so very successfully. Um, now, I, I want to ask you, sort of continuing on our theme of beauty and the transcendentals, and I promise we'll, we'll kind of descend from our highbrow flight in, in a moment or two, but I'm inclined to think that we humans have an inborn love of beauty. It's something to which we're, we're naturally attracted. I, I think we have a, like an untaught affinity for great music, for instance, maybe even more than pictorial art, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the symphonies of Beethoven and Mozart, uh, to which I think the vibrations of our very souls are tuned. Uh, I like to think similarly that we have that relationship to art. So do you think, like me, that humans are innately attracted to great art and that they simply know it when they see it and don't really need too much instruction to understand it? Or do you think that we need to be really thoroughly educated to enjoy great art? Uh, well, there's a reason why Impressionism is by far the most popular movement worldwide. Um, there isn't a lot going on there. It's studies of how light falls on scenes of real life, usually in nature, um, and it's aesthetically beautiful. And it's kind of, it's almost like a joke if you're an Impressionism scholar, then you don't have that much to do, uh, except write about the biographies of the artists because there, there isn't a lot going on in the, in the paintings. So that that is by far the most popular period. Um, there are requirements that people need in order to get the full benefit and engagement with art of older periods in particular, because there's a visual language of symbols that we've forgotten that most people knew um, in the pre-modern era. Um, either they were related to mythology or Christianity um, in Western tradition, um, or they are sort of encoded in um, the way we approach works of art and, um, and metaphors. So something that, that everybody probably is familiar with as an icon, but they never really thought of it as such is like, if you drive past a building in your downtown and you see a statue of a woman who, wearing a blindfold with a sword in one hand and scales on the other, that's an allegorical personification for um, justice, justitia, which is why it's a woman. It's a female word in Latin, and it's a it's a personification of a concept. And so that one, just about everybody's going to recognize. Okay, that's the courthouse. Um, but there used to be not a lot, but probably about two hundred or so similar images. That once you learn them, you see them everywhere in the Western tradition, and you can walk into a museum and sort of give an impromptu guided tour of much of the collection, if you acquaint yourself with these vocabulary words, these visual vocabulary words, I call them. And it's kind of it's kind of inspiring because if you think like, um, okay, I live in Slovenia. If I could teach you 200 words in Slovenian, you would be fluent 80% of the way. Um, that doesn't sound impossible to do considering what it might open up to you. And it's like that with, with learning iconography, which is the study of symbols and art. So that part, I think you basically get a far deeper and more interesting engagement if you are 
willing to learn this very basic intro to how to read works of art. Otherwise, it's an aesthetic judgment. You like the way it looks and it intrigues you or it doesn't. And that's why the beauty first without as much that you have to unpack is always gonna be the most popular. The second most popular is usually surrealism um, because they're very skillfully done. It's naturalistic and they kind of mess with your head in a way that people find pleasurable and they're very memorable because they're full of surprises. Um, and then, then you get to abstract art. And this is one thing that I think is fascinating. People find abstract art far more intimidating, even though there's less to understand than traditional art that they think is more aesthetically successful, but um, it's full of complicated symbols and stories they may not be familiar with, but it's less scary. And one of the, the reasons for that is that we have these brains that are trained to interpret things, to draw connections between things, to make stories out of things. We see a shape, this is the, the Rorschach test concept. We see an ink blot, and our mind naturally wants it to form a shape. Um, and we look outside the window and we see clouds and we naturally want to say that cloud looks like fill in the blank. Abstract art um, stops us from doing this because we're trying to and we can't find anything inside that looks like a story or an image of something we know. And we kind of tend to freak out and you have to get in the zone. And so people find it much more intimidating um, even though there's less to it. So a lot of it is just paving the way for your expectations and not panicking if you, if you um, aren't quite sure what to make of it. But of course, the default is to like the things that are pretty and not much else. So uh, with apologies to Impressionism scholars, that, that's, that's my thought. Yeah, pretty, uh, but superficial. And, yeah. and you provide a very sound education in, in symbols in, in your works. For instance, you talk about the crucifixion, right? Which is probably the most popularly depicted uh, event in in all of art, followed closely by the Annunciation or yeah. or the the announcement to Mary by the angel Arch uh, angel Gabriel that she will be uh, bearing uh, the Son of God. Uh, so you explain those symbols very elegantly and and again very accessibly, but these, like you said, are are ideas uh, and images with which the Western mind was. Um, completely permeated up until a certain time, not very long ago. Uh, like, you know, it was through these images that people would come to understand life and their religion and their connection with God and this, the biblical stories um, and the morality of which they were the inheritors. So it's it's interesting that we've almost starved ourselves of these of these symbols as we've proceeded toward a, um, a less biblical, I would say, understanding of the world or a, a less theological uh, appreciation of the world. Um, but these were just common, you know, so common that the most vulgar person or the most ill-educated person could understand by looking at the stained glass window that, you know, um, Gabriel with the these parrot-colored wings pointing to the sky and holding a lily, as you describe in your book, is indicating something not just pretty, but 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 very profound, 
right? In the symbol of the lily or in the color of his wings or in the, the gesture of, of his hand. And it's a shame that, that we lack this understanding. Um, but again, people like you are, are reacquainting us with these symbols. And I think that's absolutely invaluable. Uh, so let me ask the point you. What you is, um, is is quite literal. Like that, it was literally for people with no education who couldn't read that we had this visual language. And I think I think just just to conclude the thought, one of the the issues is that we've shifted away from um, symbolic readings of texts or images or life in general, and to something far more literal. We want to be handed things in an overt way, and previous generations and and centuries saw people who were more willing to work for it and it was more puzzle based and symbol based and it was one step removed from literally saying what we mean um and maybe there's something collectively lost in the shift from that yeah is it isn't it interesting how in centuries past these works of art were to some extent let's say stained glass works of art were to some extent deliberately made for the edification of, of the poor and the ill-educated, and they could understand every symbol. Uh, whereas today, you can find the most highly educated person who might be completely puzzled by these very same images um, in from which uh, the, the least educated once got their education. I think that's yeah, actually point. an interesting reversal uh, through, the, through the course of the the ages. So speaking of the ages, I want to ask you, is there an artistic golden age? He see it in his works and days. He talks about the golden age of man, right? We, we sort of referenced this when we were talking about Schiller and the fact that he or, or many of the critics of the modern era in which they live will, will lament the fact that they're missing something um, of the aesthetic sense. But was there ever a time when it was generally agreed that this aesthetic sense was at its at its climax, and that there was a general, uh, generally high regard for artistic work, and the artistic work was actually commensurate with that regard? It was it was at its summit. So, was there an artistic golden age, and if so, when was it? So there, there have been many, but they were um, geographically specific. So there wasn't one that was, you know, planet wide. But um, uh, Athens at, at its summit was the one that most later eras pointed to as as good as it gets when it comes to civilization. So we're talking the pinnacle of the Athenian democracy in terms of theater, poetry, thought, and art, that, that was the place to be. And other generations later looked back at it. So Rome was, when Rome was, was the world power, it was modeling its creations on essentially what Athens did. There, there were some other um, Hellenistic city-states as well, but Athens was the place to be. And then the Renaissance was, Renaissance is French for rebirth. It was a rebirth of the interest in the classical world by which they meant Rome and Greece, um, but Rome was getting its its groove from Athens. Um, but then there were other periods too. It's just you know location specific. So um, the the court of Burgundy uh, in the 1430s. Um, if we look at much of the 15th and the first 
quarter of the 16th century in Florence and Rome um, and in Venice uh, with the golden age of Spanish painting with Velazquez. Um, uh, 1950s and 60s New York was a golden age for abstract painting and abstract expressionism. So Paris in the um, second half of the 19th century. So it depends on the place and the location, but I think everyone you asked at these different eras would probably point you back to ancient Athens as that, that was the place to be. And under which epoch or period would you like to have lived? If you can guarantee me I'm not going to get any plagues, then then we can start talking. <laughs> You're inoculated. You're time traveling as an inoculated man. You have, okay. there's no risk. Okay. Of, of I mean, but the, the, the time period that, that I study the most and find the most interesting is um, the Mannerist era in Florence. So we're talking basically from the death of Raphael um, until the middle of the 16th century. So let's say 1500 to 1545, right around there would be prime time for me in Florence. And it's also, it's good because that's like a lifetime could be focused and it's in one location. And most of the artists I like best were working there. And it's funny because Florence, if, if you've ever been it, can feel big if it's your first time, but I've taught there and lived there, and it's really like a small Tuscan hilltop town that happens to have a gazillion tourists because it has so much amazing stuff crammed into it. It's really very small. Um, they symbolize themselves as David from the David and Goliath story um, because they were very small and they're trying to make sure that no giant Goliath empires tried to muscle in because they were going to kick some ass if they did. And they just had an incredible um core of all of the best artists from not just the italian peninsula but elsewhere in europe they all were focused in on florence you know circa 1500 and for the next few decades so that that's where i'd hang out and you would have no qualms living under the influence of the medici they weren't so bad there's been plenty of, of of bad despots and they they were quite all right i think it's it's all relative if you're going to pick a despot then they'll they'll do yeah, of all the desirable or undesirable despots, they might be the least undesirable. So yeah. I think in response to that question, I might go back to Athens okay. or to the age in which there was either the rediscovery of um, a lot of these bronze sculptures, um, be it the, I guess it would be in the age of, of Rome. I mean, I mean, it would maybe be the, the Roman Republic, the late Roman Republic, or even the, the Roman uh, imperial time, or in the Renaissance. I think that would absolutely be fascinating to be unearthing these partial uh, bronze statues that probably adorned the, you know, Athens and many similar uh, Greek cities uh, many hundreds of years ago at that point. And, and just to be shocked and astonished by these absolutely impressive uh, displays of, of human creativity and brilliance that you then base your own artistic heritage off of would be just, I think, endlessly interesting. Uh, so There's a moment you could go back to that's very specific, actually. Um, I, I think it was 1506. I have, to, I have to remind myself. But um, there was a moment when there was an excavation of the Domus Aurea, which was Nero's palace in Rome. And... Um, in circa 1500, it was 
essentially buried under centuries of rubbish and ruin and building up so that the level of present-day Rome is about two meters higher than Rome in the time of ancient Rome. Um, and there was a day when um, people excavated the La Quon group sculpture, which is maybe the most famous sculpture of the, the uh, classical world. And Michelangelo had many different hats that he wore, but one of them, he was basically keeper of antiquities for, for the papers. He was like the, the curator or, or archaeologist. And so he had to head on down and check out what they excavated. And it was the single most influential day of his life because the, the forms that he saw in the sculpture, which was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before, directly influenced what he did. And then what he did was the influence for mannerism, which is the period following his his death when when artists were inspired by him and carried on his work. So that'd be a good day. I will, I'll go with you to Rome. We'll grab a pizza and an espresso and, and go watch Michelangelo unexcavating un um, the Lacone group. Oh, excellent, excellent. And uh, yeah, I, I find he's a particularly fascinating figure about whom I need to learn more. And I plan to, to purchase Vasari's book um, that I learned about from having from having read your uh, book. Great. But, but Michelangelo was, uh, you know, a poet. He was the painter, he was a sculptor and an excavator, a government official. So he had all these interesting roles properly uh, deserving of the name Renaissance man or you know, yeah. polymath that we very kind of casually toss around today. Um, but but really a, just a prodigiously talented and, and um, prolific person, um, the likes of which we haven't seen uh, since. So I wanna move very briefly. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention art thievery. So far mm -hmm. as I can tell, it's a somewhat understudied subject of which you are universally acknowledged to be uh, an expert. So, uh, you know, we're talking about an asset that's quite immune to the uh, indignity of depreciation. It seems only to, to increase in value over time and thus increase in its uh, exposure to, to thievery. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, thieves are, are forever scheming up new ways uh, to, to steal it. So what stirred your interest in this field of study, art thievery? So there's a specific story about this. Um, I, it goes back to when I decided I wanted to try to write. And when I was a postgraduate student living in Rome, I wanted to be a playwright. And I actually managed to get an agent for my plays. I can't believe that, that happened, but it, it did at the time. But she said, you know, if you want to make money as a writer, you should write a novel. Have you got one? And I said, no, but I'll go write one. So I wrote a novel, which was my first book, The Art Thief. And it was behind the scenes in the art world, which I had experience as a, as a student and, and um, early in, in working life. Um, and I had read The Da Vinci Code and I enjoyed it, but I was really annoyed by all of the, the historical errors in it. It just felt like nobody had bothered to research or to fact check. Um, but of course, I liked the sales uh, figures and wanted a little bit of that, and and it was really fun to read. And I also had seen the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair, which is a super film with Pierce Brosnan, which is about art theft. And I thought, well, maybe if I can borrow some of the vibe of those two, but I want to make sure mine is historically and and 
criminologically feasible, all the, all the things, the, the, the set pieces I'm doing. So I did a lot of research and I realized there's almost nothing written on the subject. There are a handful of academic books, but very little. There were a lot of journalistic accounts, but I very quickly read everything that I could find, even things that were out of print, because there were like a hundred books total, let's say something like that. It was surprisingly small. Um, and uh, and so I very quickly became the the leading expert in this field. I think of myself as a historian of art crime because there are actual people catching bad guys who have much more experience in the field. But if I can get their stories and look at it from a criminological and historical standpoint, then that's 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 the thing that I'm best known for. So I put all of this in in a novel. So I came up to it backwards. You know, norm normally you'd think you already know about something, so then you write about it. I was trying to write a novel, and then I researched in order to do so. And because so few people studied it, um, I was still 20-something, and then all of a sudden I was was the go-to specialist in the field. And that helped, to be honest. Like, it's not so good to be a generalist. It, career Advice 101, it, it's best to hyper-specialize in one very narrow thing. So you're the world's go-to person in fill in the blank. And it's much easier to establish yourself um, that way than trying to um, do a little bit of a lot of things, even if you do a little bit of a lot of things well. So it helps for me to be basically the art crime guy. So it was uh, on the wave of enthusiasm following the release of uh, The Da Vinci Code that you got into this study of of art thievery very interesting very interesting so on that note there is one piece of art a, a triptych or a three paneled work that enjoys the distinction of being the most stolen and that is the adoration of the mystic lamb or the ghent uh, altarpiece now i'll admit um I, when i first read the name of this of the title of this work uh, i was reminded of a trip i took to charlotte north carolina around this time last year and the section in which I stayed was uh, this sort of eclectic hipster type place called Midwood. And it was rife with all these restaurants and bars with names like the Giddy Goat and the, the Peculiar Rabbit and the, the Smooth Monkey, all sorts of interesting names like that. And my first thought upon looking at your, the book, Stealing the Mystic Lamb, uh, which I have a copy right here, was that it was the name of some sort of hipster-inspired uh, artisan uh, cafe, uh, but it's not, of course. So tell us all a little bit about the, the Mystic Lamb, as I know briefly as a work of art, and just why so many thieves have sought it. So for me, this is um, an easy focal point for all the things I'm interested in. So it's easy to argue that this is the single most influential painting ever made and the most important painting ever made because it was the start of an interest in oil painting, which became the preferred medium for the next 450 years or so. And it's also the most frequently stolen work of art. And just about anything bad that can happen to a painting has happened to this one. So um, for me, it is the perfect like uh, nexus of everything I'm interested in. So it was finished in 1432. It was painted by Jan van Eyck. Um, and when it was painted, it was the most famous work of art in the world. And it was a point of pilgrimage um, for anyone interested in art traveling in Europe. And it was on display in the Cathedral of Ghent in Belgium. Um, and because it was so famous, it became um, a magnet for people to take either in war or for personal profit. 
And they're about, I mean, I say about, depending on your definition of, of crimes, there are 13 bad things that happened to this one painting over about 600 years, including having been stolen either six or seven times, depending on your definition of theft. And it has the unfortunate distinction of also being um, in a territory, Flanders and Belgium, that has been um, the battleground for a lot of European-wide conflicts. So when you get to Ghent, what is first thing you do? You, you steal the mystic land. <laughs> Everyone else is doing it. So the Napoleonic War, First World War, and Second World War, it was a primary target. Um, and so the book is a biography of an object, and it's easier for us to cheer for people. Biographies of humans, we humans tend to find it easier to sympathize with other humans. So part of the challenge is if the, the, the protagonist is an inanimate object, a piece of art, can we imbue it with enough that you're sort of cheering for it to be saved and to make it as interesting as possible? And so it's, it's a lot of isms. It was the first realist work. It was the first important oil painting. It um, has a sort of A to Z of Catholic mysticism, so all the symbols involved, and that interests me because I like to teach about art as like a detective story of vis visual puzzles. And in this case, there's also a real detective story because one of the 12 panels is still missing. So for me, this is like the perfect lens of, of everything that I'm into. Yeah, and you provide uh, pictures of it in your in your book, and you see immediately that this is is not a, a an inconspicuous little piece of artwork. I mean, it's it's quite large and unwieldy, and to imagine it's being stolen and hidden and transferred, to, you know, between Napoleonic. Um, uh, you know, um, houses of of collection and Hitler's, uh, you know, underground layers is is unfathomable. It's really, uh, it's really crazy to think that these panels could have been <laughs> moved around so many times, and and yet they're, you know, overall I would think intact. Uh, you know, I've... they they're eleven twelfths intact, so that's pretty good, all things considered. So. Um... One panel that was stolen in 1934 has never been found. And there is still an open investigation. The Ghent police always have an officer assigned to the case, even now. And there are some crazy tips they get that they really follow through on um, and still missing. So I have a feeling one of these days it'll be found and it'll be a very exciting day. And then we'll, we'll all go to Ghent for, for beer and fries. I think it's about time for you to, to get on uh, get out your baton and your detective badge and Get on the case yourself. Get away from the study and the desk and get out into the field and find it. <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I did come across some clues that I passed on to the Ghent police. Um, and I, I have a few thoughts, but um, you got to have a warrant to follow through with them. I'll leave it at that. So I'll leave it to the professionals. <laughs> yeah, that's probably wise. <laughs> so we're going to conclude with one question more. Now, I won't ask you to disclose your favorite work of art. I think you're on record for declaring that to be Bronzino's allegory yep. of love and lust, which yep. is an endlessly fascinating piece of art, <laughs> to which I'll surely include a link in the show notes below. It was quite an experience just to look at it in look at it in your work, to read your description of it, and then with a little bit of subsequent research to, to go online and really examine it a little bit more closely. And it's it's quite an experience, to put it mildly. So I know that that's your favorite work of art. It might be mine now as well. But the question I ask is a little bit different. Uh, 
what was the first work of art that completely overwhelmed you? The first work of art that shook your foundations and caused your soul to quiver? That's the Teotaka Madonna on the island of Torcello off of Venice. Um, I'm not sure that's the earliest one, but that's the one that first came to mind, and it's certainly early on. It's um, a mosaic, which normally I wouldn't think it has the ability to be so moving, but it's it's the kind of the only one that I, it didn't actually make me cry, but it got closer, closest, closest enough to it of, of any work that I've seen. And part of what I like about it is I like works of art that you have to sort of take... Um, a pilgrimage to get to that museums are great but it's it's almost too easy uh, i like it looking forward to seeing a single work that you have to make a journey for and then the anticipation and the fulfillment of actually seeing it is much more exciting than if the same work were at a museum with two thousand other works so you really have to you go to you have to go to venice then you have to take a traghetto out to torcello um and uh, if it's not summertime you might even be in the church where it's located on your own. Um, and there's something about the expression on Mary's face that just um, zinged me. So that would be my answer. Amazing. And I'm sure it struck you with an immediacy uh, and in a profundity that is hardly expressible in words. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, uh, it's this idea of truth and beauty that we talked about earlier and goodness. There we go. This is a good, good tying up from early in the conversation. Um, there's something about the look in her eyes that some artists who depict Mary take advantage of, but most don't. And this is the idea that if, um, if you're told that the only reason that your child was created was in order to die, do you have a different sort of um, maternal dynamic with the child? And is it one constantly um, laced with sadness? Or is it just, you know, until someone comes up with an um, eternal life potion, um, you could say that about every child, just they usually don't predecease their parents. But the, so something about that, she knows what's going to happen in his future um, is in her eyes. And that is really hard to do when you're sculpting in like pieces of glass or stone. Um, you think of mosaics as more of a blunt instrument than a scalpel. So hats off to the anonymous um, mosaicist who made that. Oh my goodness, and it's anonymous, so without attribution. That is amazing and such a heartfelt description of, of your reason for so uh, enjoying that, that piece of artwork. Uh, and you're absolutely right. If you can capture that image, that look of poor knowledge and concern in Mary's eyes, it it almost tempts one to to convert, if he's not a Christian, to that uh, beautiful religion. And I think you're absolutely right. It's that convergence, great works of art are, are that convergence of truth, beauty, and goodness, again, which is something that is said to be in Jesus, in Christ himself, or in God, or, or in whatever divinity in which you believe, or, you know, greater power in which you believe. It's, it's that unity of the three things. So with that profound thought, uh, Noah, I have to Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode. Uh, I'll be sure to include links to all of your books, but especially the, the two most recently published uh, that I think everyone uh, should purchase and, and keep in their houses. 
they're very informative and very accessible. Um, now, are there any other social media sites or, or um, platforms that people should know about to sure. better uh, be able to uh, reach out to you and contact you? Sure. The, the only one I really like is Instagram. I have don't, I'm so old, I don't even have TikTok and I've never actually seen it. So I'm <laughs> so Instagram is um, my my tag is Slovenology because I live in Slovenia and I'm running around there um, or noacharney.com. You can take a look at um, and I, I have forthcoming in May. I'm teaching a series of four online lectures for Atlas Obscura about famous art crimes. So if anybody's interested in that subject, they can they can check that out as well. But I want to thank you for being such a good interviewer. You know, I I get interviewed a lot, but it's always the same questions, and you have a lot of questions I've never been asked before, and you really did your homework. So so hats off. This is a very impressive job as an interviewer. Oh, thank you so very much. I pride myself on coming from left field and and trying to to rattle you a little bit, but you were completely unperturbed and eloquent in all of your responses. Again, I've uh, been the beneficiary of both of your books. I'm planning to to read everything else that you have to offer, and I've recommended them all very enthusiastically and highly to everyone who will listen. Um, so, and of course, uh, you know, everyone who's so inclined, you can subscribe to this channel, Finner and Zwick, and also to my uh, sister project, Numa Meditations, where we discuss mindfulness and other things to which uh, we were making reference a little bit earlier. Uh, and with that. I thank you very much for your time. Noah, you've been amazing. And I hope to talk to you again in the future. I would love to come back. Thank you so much and have a good one. All right, thank you and farewell. Rock, believe a rock, then you 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 rock, believe a rock, then you